Hey everyone, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is Nick Gibson. I'm the senior pastor here at High Point, and I'm here with Hannah Savage, one of our staff members. And this podcast is part of our testimony interview series. So we're going to be talking with Hannah about her testimony, what she, where she's been, what she's been through, and where she's going. Hi everyone. Hey. So uh, Hannah, why don't you tell people like your work history here? Like how did you come to be on our staff and what do you do? Yeah, so I started attending High Point in November of 2012, four-year anniversary. Yay! Um, and then started volunteering, just doing editing for the blog and things that you were writing, Nick. And then um, I was overseas for all of 2014, and when I came back, I wanted to talk with you about interning and ended up doing sort of a half-internship, half-staff combo for the summer of 2015. And I was working primarily with the Global Missions team and with our local service, and then still doing some editing things. And then I started grad school in the fall of 2015, and then I went to part-time staff. And my role has changed a bit since then, since going and coming back. And Mm -hmm. um, so primarily now I'm working with um, editing and a little bit of writing stuff for the blog and teaching content research, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Helping prepare a book for this next fall. (laughs) Right. If it ever comes together. Right, yeah, book number two. Yeah. Um, And also then... doing some mentoring for our female interns as well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So Hannah has an undergrad from Moody Bible Institute. Mm-hmm. And so she's one of our more theologically competent people and therefore one of the only people I trust to edit my blog. Competent on paper, at least. Competent on paper, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, um, your pa- and your parents go to church here. They do, yeah. You uh, may have run into them, Deb and Doug Savage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you see them, tell them how wonderful they are. Yeah, Deb leads the prayer team. She does, yeah. So you'll probably have seen her down front um, after a lot of services. She leads the team that does that. Um, yeah. yeah. They're Sweet. both deacons. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, you were born at a very young age in the, age, in the state of infancy. I right? was, I was. And they've renamed it Wisconsin since then. Yeah. Um, so I, I was born and raised in Monona. Um, so okay. I've been here my, most of my life. Um, and parents were Christians all through my growing up. And I can't really remember a time of not being a Christian. They tell me supposedly that when I was four, I really sort of committed to Christ. And a story that I think is funny and kind of telling, looking in hindsight, mm-hmm. as to my independent streak. Because supposedly I was four, and they put me to bed, and I came out the next morning and said, hey, by the way, I accepted Christ last night, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that independent streak is good days and bad days. Because, like, every Christian parent kind of dreams of the day that they will... Right, like, kneel down beside their child and right. lead them through the prayer, and I was like... Hug them afterwards right. with tears in their eyes. Right, and, and I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, that I didn't uh, let you have that with me. Yeah. Sorry. I prayed with Fluffy the bear. <laughs> right. I led him to Christ also. Right. Yeah. No yeah. big deal. Yeah. So, so, all right. So your testimony's over. You're four. Right. Right. And then it's just been uphill since then. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, what, um, this is a great opportunity for you mm-hmm. to kind of like help people understand how they actually have a testimony when they be yeah. a Christian at a young age. Yeah. It took me a long time to reconcile that I had a story to tell. Yeah. Um, I really struggled with that growing up in the church my whole life. Um, so it was always really hard for me. And they're like, give us your one-minute testimony. I was like, well, I was born a Christian, and then <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah. yeah, it definitely has. But that um, wasn't the last time in your life you repented and believed, I imagine. No, absolutely not. Um, I went to a lot of summer camps, so we do that every year. Yeah, right. Got to say it every year. Right. But I was in public school all growing up, um, and that was really formative for me. Um and I was really the sort of stereotypical good kid who was like, don't play public radio on the bus, it's evil, or like, right. um, 
Yeah, so Do you know of, what that song's about? Right. Yeah. Are you even listening to the words of this song? Right. It's lyrics, people. <laughs> right. Lyrics. Exactly. But um, then in middle school, hit kind of like the typical middle school crisis, I guess, um, where I think I felt like God owed me more for all of my years of faithfulness. Like I'd been working really hard and being really obedient and things didn't weren't working out the way I wanted. Yeah, that should clearly equate into boyfriends. Right? <laughs> or at least friends. Right. right. <laughs> So, I mean, I had friends. So were but... you, were you, all, so people can't see you. Like, yes. so you're how tall? I'm, well, I'm, I'm six one now. Okay. Um, and I peaked at six feet around like ninth grade, probably. So in ninth grade, yeah. you are this, you're six I feet tall. And did you wear, did you wear four inch heels then? In the whole school. No, I don't, I think I had a pair of like four inch platform shoes. Yeah. And like. So, so like the boys are afraid of you. Right. Right. The girls are kind of intimidated. You were yeah. the tallest person in the whole school. Yes. Yeah. Male or female, all grades combined. Um, yeah. But it was even more than that. I think I had this sort of latent pride that hadn't really been addressed or identified. And so I remember this moment and I can laugh about it now because of God's grace, but it definitely sort of shows the wickedness of young hearts too. Um, I think in sixth grade, I had this moment where I was like commenting on something in my head and I thought, Hannah, you are so funny and nobody knows how funny you are. This is a crime against humanity. People need to know how funny you are. You need to get people to pay attention to you. Were you relatively quiet all along? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so I set out on kind of a scheme to, like, get the popular friends and make sure everyone knew how great I was. And it's not supposed to work. Like, when you set out on schemes like that, you're supposed to just crash and burn and realize that it was futile and that's not where happiness is found. But it worked really well, actually. Mm -hmm. And I got all these new friends and... um, and yet that sort of plunged me into depression that I had never experienced before because there was this moment when I still kept up this, you know, like good girl routine. And one of my friends um, by this time, like my freshman year in high school, um, I will never forget what he said to me. He said, oh, yeah, there's Hannah, the like Christian girl who acts all good, but we all know what she's really like. And I was, like, sensitive enough to Christ to know that that was a bad thing. Did he, <laughs> did he mean, like, you act like this on Sunday, but all week you actually do what everybody else does? Or did he mean you are, like, a Christian mm-hmm. on the outside, but your heart is really kind of terrible? I think he meant more the latter. Yeah. Because there weren't a lot of, like, really, like, I wasn't flamboyantly rebellious. Mm-hmm. Um, but people can see what leaks out of your heart, you know, mm-hmm. despite all of your best efforts at maintaining your holy appearance and I think he was picking up on that and that was a big sort of wake-up call for me in that um and tying together the depression that I had and the fact that I was not living like who I knew that I was um and I had been sort of playing God on my own um and so and I had I didn't have when you say playing God on your own do you mean like controlling your own life yeah trying to make things happen on my own and pursue my own agenda and um, because salvation was having popular friends that realized how funny you were. Exactly, right. Yeah. To have my identity based in those things and to find my value there. And that's what salvation is, is mm-hmm. to have your identity secure and to be fixed and happy and all of those things. For a 15-year-old, that's pretty much the whole world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that was really a come to Jesus moment for me and repentance and sort of entering into high school and really committing like, what, what is this about? 
Um, but it was also kind of a crisis of faith for me and wrestling with a lot of questions of science and like maybe I just imagined that this God was there. I didn't have any Christian friends in my school. Um, and so I wrestled a lot with doubt and I remember this one, there were many nights, this sounds kind of dramatic, but there were a lot of nights when I remember literally laying on my floor, sort of terrified that God didn't exist and just praying, um, and I remember coming to this point of like, I would rather believe a painful lie than a pleasant fiction. And that if God doesn't exist, that would be terrible and devastating. But I would rather know that than just live in this sort of fictional fairyland that there's this loving God who cares about us. And um, so I wrestled with that a lot um, in my first year or two of high school. And I think what really brought me back was giving weight to those questions and really having space to pursue them. Um, and then being reconvinced of my faith and reconvinced of what I had believed my whole life, but in a deeper and fuller way. So, How did that happen? Um, contemplating the questions of science and not being satisfied with the answers that science gave really for where the world came from. Mm -hmm. I remember like this image that kept coming to mind as I would be thinking about myself sitting on Earth and sort of zooming out and picturing the whole sphere of the Earth and then the galaxies and the universe and just like zooming out as far as I could imagine and thinking there has to be something outside of this. Like this couldn't have just generated itself. Science can't explain it. Mm -hmm. um, it really doesn't make any sense at all. There has to be a generator. Um, mm -hmm. And so as simple as, sort of simplistic as that, image was, it was really powerful for me in those moments when I was really questioning whether God existed and just kind of like mentally picturing that and zooming out as far as I could go. And there had to be an edge to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So you, so you got through high school like that. I made it. I made it. Yeah. And the whole time you never had a close Christian friend. I had one. Well, I had, I mean, I was, I grew up in the church, but I didn't have a lot of close friends. What church, church did you grow up in? A church here in Madison. Okay. <laughs> and um, the... That will go unnamed. Right. Um, but the f last year, my last year of high school, God finally answered my prayer to give me a great Christian friend. Um, and actually, uh, Christina Flaherty, Tom Flaherty's daughter, mm -hmm. they moved to town when Tom accepted the pastorate position at City Church, and um, she became my first Christian friend in Christina Flaherty was your that yeah. friend? Yeah. Dang, you win. I know, I scored big. She's so wonderful. I know. So she's a very dear friend of mine to this day, and she was a great answer to prayer. I had no idea you guys were friends. Yeah, there you go. Wow. You know good. where I get all my good parts from now. Yeah. Wow. Except the ones that came from my parents, of course. Of course. Um, but yeah, I walked so, up to her in calculus class, and I was like, hey, you're new here. Why'd you, how'd you get here? And she said, oh, my dad's a pastor. And I just knew. <laughs> it's you. You're finally here. You're the one. That's so great. Okay, so then you went to college and mm -hmm. you decided to go to Moody Bible Institute. Yeah, kicking and screaming. I was really okay. loved being in public school. I had the opportunity to go to um, ALCS, actually. I had a lot of friends who went to a Benet Life Christian school. Um, and so my From parents, church? Uh, yeah, from church. Okay, yeah. sort of. Okay. Um, and family, friends, and things. And so my parents gave me the chance to go there, but I really loved being in the public school, and I really loved all of my non-Christian friends. Um, 
And it was so sort of formative for me in teaching me to communicate the truth. So this whole like uh, indifference to being a minority and love for the exotic, and, <laughs> like that, that has kind of led to you being an international sort of person. Did this like, have you always been like this? Because uh, some people like they don't they don't want to go out to eat and eat something other than a hamburger and fries, mm-hmm. right? And you're kind of like I do love chicken tenders. You a lot. seem like you are. You don't despise home, uh-huh. like hearth and home. And I used to. I yeah. used to. I think that's part of my story as well. Um, All right. So college. Yeah. So I was really determined to go to a public school, public college. Um, right. Until the summer before my senior year in high school, I worked at Lakewood Mesa Bible Camp as a full-time staff. And I grew up going there a lot. Um, But it was my first time really being sort of immersed in Christian community for months on end and all Mm -hmm. working towards the same goal and praying together and supporting each other. It's very different. It was so addicting. (laughs) I'd never had that before. And so I think God really used that to humble me and teach me that I really needed to have that for a season. Do you think that's why so many kids accept Christ at summer camps? I mean, it's so powerful. It's the... It's tasting and seeing the gospel in action. Every pastor wants to believe that when they go and are the speaker at summer camp, yeah. that the kids that make professions of faith, like mm-hmm. that's, it's they're like, they're such a good speaker. Mm-hmm. And, but it, it's the, it's the feel, right? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, that can't be denied. I remember some of my speakers to comfort you. I remember <laughs> some of them, but not a whole lot. Um, right. But the, the fact that your counselor really cared about you and they all cared about each other and people sure. didn't rip, rip each other. And right. I think that was all the kinds thing. of games being played. That was the thing. Like, I don't, I remember most of the friends I had at camp, I already had before I went in. So it mm. wasn't like it totally turned my world upside down. Yeah. Um, but it was seeing a way of life that the gospel made possible that I think is really yeah. the beautiful thing about it. So. Yeah. So after that, um, that's how that's how I learned what Christianity was. Yeah, was a Christian children's camp. Yeah. Plug for Nick's testimony. You can hear that on the earlier podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm taking. I'm, people aren't realizing how funny you are. <laughs> Give me the attention. Yeah. Give me the so, attention. Okay. So you were going to go to a public college. You right. went to Liquid Beast, and you're like, this might not be so bad. Right. But I didn't want to go to the same college that my parents went to, which was Moody. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, okay. So I was kind of kicking and screaming that I ended up there. Um, but the main reason I went there was because they have a linguistics program that's really quite good. Um, and I had realized I really loved languages through studying French in high school. And I had a, my French teacher was fluent in eight languages, and that was really exciting to me. And um, so mm-hmm. I went for linguistics and Moody was the best choice. And um, I was really an act of God that I ended up wanting to go there because he just had to change my heart a lot. Um, but by the time acceptance came around, it was I just knew that was the only place that I was going to go. Did you like the context? Because like, it's really downtown Chicago in yeah. an urban area, multi-ethnic. Yeah, that was a big factor for me. Because if you'd gone to Taylor or something, mm-hmm. good school, mm-hmm. not where your parents went, but out in the middle of stinking nowhere. Right. 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 And... Um, and I also really love Chicago. I've always mm-hmm. loved Chicago. I've, I think what I love about Madison makes me love Chicago more. Um, because growing up in, I mean, I wasn't in the Madison district. But I was in Monona and the diversity and sort of uh, off-colorness sometimes of Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just like it. I love it. I enjoy it a lot. So... Um, being downtown in Chicago was really appealing to me too. Even though I spent my first year in Spokane, Washington, at their campus there. 
So that's a whole other story. Because you wanted to go moose hunting. No, no doubt. because I, that's a longer story than needs we have to time be told, for probably. Yeah. All right. You can, if you, when you see Hannah around church, you can ask her why. <laughs> she went to Spokane for her first year. So you went to Moody. I did. Everybody does Bible, right? Everyone does Bible. It's a double major. So Bible, Bible major and, and then linguistics. applied linguistics major. And then I, in my second year, I added in an inter- interdisciplinary in theology as well. Okay. And then you graduated. Yeah, I did. Um, some things happened between then and between yeah. those times. I think one of the biggest things for me in college was, um, first of all, I remember my first day in Old Testament survey when we did... Um, doesn't everybody? Doesn't everybody? <laughs> doesn't everybody brought to tears on their first day of Old Testament survey? But really, because we did Genesis 3, and I grew up in the church, um, but in all of those years, nobody had some... I saw how I missed it. I'm sure someone told me, but I missed it, that the gospel is in chapter 3. Right. You know? <laughs> it never... I never saw it before, and I just started weeping with the realization that God had this all figured out from chapter 3. <clears throat> before that, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But... Yeah, it was just so impactful for me, and that sort of set the tenor for my time at Moody. And then I started studying church history, just in, like, survey of Christianity and Western culture. And I, in all of my conversations in high school with my non-Christian friends, the church fathers were usually, like, the crazy uncle at the at the party where you Mm -hmm. don't really want anyone to talk to as soon as they open their mouth they're kind of you're kind of embarrassed by them and you kind of shove them off in the closet you Mm -hmm. lose the argument as soon as you bring up some church father who is really sexist or really racist or really Mm -hmm. anti-semitic etc and And then it turns out most of them weren't right but you don't know everybody thinks that because you went to public school and they quoted some sure Right, and I didn't know any better because um, we didn't study the church fathers in church. Um, <laughs> so um, I just assumed that everyone was right and they were terrible. Um, but in studying church history was really transformative for me because uh, I really began to see them as just people, as men and women who loved God and got some things wrong but served God with all their hearts and mm-hmm. were standing on their shoulders. and Got a lot of things right. Yeah, that we have wrong now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so that impressed upon me the difference that context makes and how bound we are to our context mm-hmm. in some ways and how blind we are, what blind spots we have, but also what insights we have that people in other contexts don't have. And that's really where my love for sort of the global church and crossing cultures was kindled, kind of strangely, was through mm-hmm. the church fathers. Um, but just seeing a glimpse <clears throat> of the church in a way that... I had never been introduced to before and seeing God work in ways that were really foreign to my experience. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and these, some of these guys are like Syrians and North right, Africans and Alexandrians. Right, and, like Augustine was North African and mm-hmm. we forget that a lot. And, yeah, I mean, Athanasius was, they call mm-hmm. him the black dwarf. Right, yeah. So um, I think that was a huge turning point for me and yeah. um, learning to love the whole church and all of its sort of quirks and failures and beauties and successes and um, to sort of question my own judgment and thinking that I'm infallible and that I've got it figured out and um, yeah being able to learn from diverse places and so you wanted did you start like um, actively seeking relationships with international students then not really to be honest I had a really hard time connecting with international students in college um, and I always kind of like gazed longingly across the cafeteria at them, <laughs> but it wasn't really until I came back to Madison after I graduated and I started working with internationals here through the tour of Madison and other things that I really got connections with international students. Mm-hmm. And then you decided you wanted to serve abroad. 
Um, well, I mean, the linguistics program at Moody is designed for Bible translation. And so that was sort of the course that I was on. And so I was in the missions department learning about missions. That was just kind of assumed that's where we would be headed. Sorry. Um, and I interned with an organization called Pioneer Bible Translators mm-hmm. while I was uh, finishing my degree. And that kind of set me on a path to work with them a couple more times. Um and that team works with all of our Africa area languages. I think in the course of a, the, the year of 2014, I was overseas with them for that year, and we worked with 17 different African languages mm-hmm. and Indian languages at the time. Say in Indian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was one Indian language. They were working on an oral translation for a language, and we consulted on that one too. Mm-hmm. But you were also already starting to study Korean. And I started studying Korean in, the, in 2012, yeah, the end of... 2012, I think. Because I think I remember us talking about Blueprint. Okay. The book. You were uh-huh. in Africa. We were Skyping. Right. And then we got on the shape of Korean letters. Oh, it's so elegant. And how they like <laughs> are similar to the shape of the mouth. Yeah. I that, wish I could draw a picture for everyone listening right, right? now. Right. Because you did that. Yeah. I think you got out a piece of paper and drew it and held it up to your computer in Africa so I could see it here and yeah. be enriched by the way... That Korean letter was formed. Yeah, once you study linguistics, the geekiness just takes a long time to wash out. So, yeah. Yeah. So, because you wanted to serve people in Eastern Asia. Right. Well, I mean, it was kind of a confusing time for me because I was do- working with Bible translation. I loved theology. And when I did my interdisciplinary major, everyone was a little confused. They're like, why would you do those two things together? No one had ever done an interdisciplinary in linguistics and theology before, and they were all a little confused. And That's also a little horrifying. Right. right? <laughs> right that was sort of my reaction. I was like, why would you not want right. this? Right. <laughs> why don't people do this all the time? Right. But I was insecure enough to be like, maybe I'm crazy, but I really <laughs> feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. Um and so it is kind of a, a strange mix still, just because people don't usually do it that way. Um, but it helped a lot in doing consulting and um, exegetical consulting and theological thinking. I, and yeah, I mean, interpreting the Bible has a good bit to do with linguistics, doesn't it? It does. Which is kind of where we get our theology. Yes. Huh. It all depends on language. <laughs> um, but... Then I never really had any plans to go to Africa. That was never really a dream of mine. Um, and our te- our African team was actually based out of Italy, so I was in Italy for a good time, and I never really had any I remember that being there either. Somebody has to suffer for Jesus, as we exactly, say. Exactly, right. So um, if you had been in our house in the winter, <laughs> you would have understood. <laughs> our house was um, built in the 9th century. It was an old monastery. Yeah. Um, that is not. That is not the nineties. No, no, no. <laughs> that's the ninth century. Exactly. So, um, so that sounds romantic yeah. until you have to live in it, and you, yeah, it has no that was heat. before there were Christian denominations, before <laughs> the Great Schism, <laughs> yes. slightly after Charlemagne ruled the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, and the walls haven't been fixed since. <laughs> the roof still leaks. This so, is a few cracks a few in a thousand years. Yeah, but the walls are like sixteen inches thick. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's very insulated, which just means the temperature doesn't change. It doesn't mean it gets to the temperature you want. It means it doesn't change. But anyway. It stays right at a balmy 42 degrees. <laughs> right. So anyway, all that to say, um, I never planned really to be in Europe. I never really planned to be in Africa, but I never really felt God calling me to a specific place. Um, and meanwhile, in the background, I was kind of 
developing an interest in East Asia, Japan, China, Korea, primarily, and not really sure what God was doing with that. Have you, okay, can I stop you for just a second? Because I think this is a good teachable mm-hmm. moment. Have you found that, because when I was um, sort of finding myself in the church when I was a late teenager, early 20-something, there was a sense when people talked about international service mm-hmm. or um, or missions or mm-hmm. something like that. People would say, I felt called to the who going to want to seize people in hey. Central Zambia. You know, you're kind of like, oh, is that how it's supposed to be? And you, what you're saying is kind of like, these were my interests. Mm-hmm. I was kind of the sort of person that fit international living. I loved linguistics. Most mm-hmm. of the interesting linguistic work was happening in things like Bible translation. Mm-hmm. Right? So, you know, this is the magnetism that drew me in that direction, but I didn't have a, right? Mm-hmm. Did you did you run into other people that their calling was discerned that way? I remember having a lot of internal crisis and meeting people who had that like clear sense of calling to these people, and I'm going to live in this village for 25 years, and this is where God has called me to be, and wondering, is it supposed to be like that? Am I supposed to feel that way? Because I uh-huh. don't. Will I ever feel that way? And right. um, Yeah, so I really struggled with that question. Um, but I had a teammate that I was very, I was very close with, and her call to missions was probably different than most people have heard. Because she was at her church. She's from Oregon. Um, her family owns, they're like sheep shepherds, sheep mm-hmm. ranchers. <laughs> what do you call them today? They have thousands of sheep and pastures in Oregon. And it's a family business. She loves her family. She's very much a homebody. Never, ever wanted to leave in her whole life. Very opposite of me. Mm-hmm. I was always like, oh, I want to see new places. And um, Well, when you have sheep dogs that sleep right in the bed with you, I mean, who would want to go anywhere? Who would want to go anywhere, Right. Um, I'm sure she felt differently when she was like helping them give birth at two in the morning, like 16 in a row, you know, but anyway, um, yeah, so, but she was in church one day and someone came and preached and said, every time I hear people talk about missions, their response is, I will go if God calls me. He said, just once I want someone to say, I will go unless God tells me not to. And she just sat there and she said, I can do that. I can be that person. If your whole life will be made by one person doing that, I'll do it. (laughs) Right. But that was really, she felt convicted and she said, well, there's nothing stopping. I mean, I hope God stops me. It was basically her strategy. Like I will go into missions and I just pray that God will stop me before I actually get there. And then you can be self-righteous the rest of your life. (laughs) Right. But she's been there for how many years now? Probably six years she's been on the field now. And um, she just... Feels like she's exactly where God called her to be, and He never stopped her, so she's there. And um, so that kind of changed my paradigm a little bit for what missionary call is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. That it's much broader than um, we often think. And for me, my work suited me really well because it didn't ask, it didn't make me commit to one specific place. I just loved the work that I was doing, and I loved the goal mm-hmm. that we were moving towards. And yeah, if you're going to serve in a number of different locations, then getting called to a particular people in a particular place might not be the best thing. Right, it would be a little hindrance. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question about? I think all, so. I think yeah. So then you spent some time in Africa. You came back here. Mm-hmm. Served at High Point for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was easy and totally productive. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I God was teaching me a lot of lessons through that time. Um, and I think um, teaching me to work through a lot of my fears, a lot of my insecurities, and find my identity in Him and not in my performance and not in what people think of me or what I'm doing. And um, But to 
do that with humility and not just say it's me and God and I know what I'm doing and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what anybody thinks or what feedback I get um, but also to be a lover of peace and to know that um, peace is something very dear to the heart of God reconciliation and um, unity takes work and um, that it's work worth doing for the gospel mm-hmm. so yeah yeah, I think the job you did the year you were in the middle of those two before you went to Korea after you came back, that was the that was the more, most difficult time of, for unity mm-hmm. in the six years I've been here. Mm. And you were kind of in the middle of the explosion of that. Yeah. And it seemed like that was, I know that was really difficult. It was really hard for me. And, um, and this spring, 2016, That's the year, right? 2016. Mm -hmm. I was overseas, actually, doing a semester of seminary. Um, And it was kind of a recuperation period for me in a lot of ways. Um, And kind of processing through a lot of things from that season. And um, I think that was really important for me to have that time. Yeah. So you did a semester in South Korea. Right, yeah, we're kind of mixing our timelines now. But mm-hmm. I started seminary in 2015 in the fall. Uh, and then spring of 16, I did a semester in Seoul, South Korea, at a seminary there. Yeah, for which my dream of you being substantially and regularly here for like two to three <laughs> years was crushed. I warned you. Yeah. I tried to warn you. Did. you. Um, but the my goal in doing that um, was really that I had sort of grown in my love for the church, the global church, and I really wanted to help the church bridge cultural gaps um, and build unity across those divisions. And I had had experience in Africa, a little bit in Europe. I had never been to Asia before, and I God had been growing my interest in East Asia. And I had studied some Korean, so it's just kind of a good fit all around. Um, and guaranteed credit transfer at Trinity, so Woo. can't complain about that. Right. So that's kind of how I ended up there. Sweet. So you came back here. You've been here a while. Yeah, I got back and uh, started back on staff in July. And my job has shifted, like I said. And um, I was in seminary again this fall. Um, But when I was in Korea, God started sort of shifting things around for me and sort of um, giving me more light about my next steps and um, really shifted my focus towards East Asia, away from the translation work that I've been doing, and um, kind of set me on the path that I'm going on now. Um, so I joined another organization called English Language Institute China, and they place English teachers in various countries in Asia, in the Middle East, and North Africa. And so, um, Lord willing, next fall I'll start uh, teaching, uh, at a university in Northeast China as an English professor there, um, for a two-year commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the Southeast. Northeast. Northeast. Yeah. It's like tucked up right next to Russia <laughs> and oh. North Korea. It's really okay. far up North. Okay. So. Sweet. Yeah. And, but you still have to raise to get support with your sending agency. Right, the school um, is nonprofit, and my organization is nonprofit, so they don't pay for the, the work. So all of the like. Costs... Nor, but nor does the university. Right, right. 
So most schools in China will give a stipend to their teachers, but this one doesn't. So um, yeah, I just tend to pick the most expensive and difficult and <laughs> non-intuitive things. Yeah. But, it's like a good millennial. <laughs> yeah. Blame it on the Holy Spirit. So, right. um, so if people want to know about how they can partner with you if they want to, then yeah. savage at highpointchurch.org. Yeah, the best way is to, to email me through that email address or find me in person. Um, and if you and since you're one of the tallest people in the church, look I'm for not the hard to find. Tall, straight hair, and blonde woman with dark rimmed glasses. Yes, although I'm getting new glasses this week. Doesn't so talk much, but when she does, oh, she's hilarious. Yes, just remember that. Remember that part. Mm-hmm. That's the takeaway from today. So, yeah, and then I also, you can visit um, my teacher profile with ELIC. Um, it's just elic.org slash support slash Hannah. So let me ask you one more question about like what God has taught you, and then you can add whatever you want. So you're, you're older than 25, less than 70. Yes. Right. So, um, you have peers that are married, some that have babies yes. and you're single yes. and have been, you, you're not on your second husband or anything. Correct. So how, what does it look like to be? a person who's not only single but who like moves around internationally mm-hmm. is picking up roots and move because some people say like well singleness you can really find a rooted intimate singleness but that's even harder if you're like picking up roots and like oh, i'm gonna go live in seoul south korea mm-hmm. and um how do you what would you say to single people and how do you negotiate mm-hmm. the human needs of belonging and companionship and so on Mm-hmm. that are supposed to be somewhat like settled a little bit if you get married mm-hmm. that somebody's supposed there's at least one person that is supposed to be there for you mm-hmm. um to the fact that it's you, mm-hmm. you know? yeah that's a great question and one that i think a lot about um and because someone just recently asked me what are you afraid of in going on this to your commitment and i think loneliness was the first thing that came to mind um And I remember in undergrad thinking about doing missions and being single. And I had this fear of becoming homeless, (laughs) not in the literal sense, although, I mean, literally, I technically am in some ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the sense that every time you go over, every day that passes in a community, Think of it as people being woven together. Sometimes it makes a really messy, ugly weave. Sometimes it's really beautiful, but you can't pass a day without some type of weaving happening. And then you step out of that weaving and you're always stepping into something else, which is a beautiful gift. I mean, to have like family on four continents is a beautiful gift. Um, But you get woven in there and then you get yanked out of it again and you Mm -hmm. come back to the place where you used to fit and it's not there anymore. Like Mm -hmm. it kept weaving while you were gone. Right. Um, and, and, you, you and you tore the fabric when you pulled out of the other place. Right, right. And so I, it feels kind of like everywhere you go, you get a new sort of fish hook in your heart, and it pulls at you towards everywhere that you've left behind. Um, and all the while, you get changed a little bit in every place you go. So you go back to the old place, and even if all the same people are there, um, you're not the same person that you were. You don't fit in the same place anymore, so you have to sort of start over in some ways. And um people have grown together in ways that are different and um you never really get the same home back no matter how many times you go or come and it's almost like going back home after you leave right you know you can't ever go home again is the thing in the south right which i mean 
I'm sure if my parents listen to this, they'll say, you can always come, come home, <laughs> which um, has been a treasure for me and that yeah. I have that really stable place to go back to. Yeah, for I mean, for me, I feel like I experienced this literally. Like I grew up on a farm mm-hmm. and since I have left home and my father died, mm-hmm. the barns have fallen down. Yeah. And the gra- and the and the cows are all gone and the fields have all grown up and mm-hmm. it, it just doesn't look anything like it used to look. Right. There is no home anymore. It literally is gone. You right. know, and it kind of feels that way. You leave home and everything changes. And... Right. And, um, and I think where sort of being single comes in is that you're always living in other people's houses. You're always, you're always the third wheel or the fifth wheel or the 11th wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're sort of moving in someone else's circles all the time. Right. And that they have their rhythms of life. They have their family routines. And you're sort of, you're always an added thing. Um, and that takes its toll after a while as well. And you start to really feel, feel the loneliness in small things. I was just telling someone today, I think what, when I feel most lonely is on airplanes when I'm flying by myself mm-hmm. and I see someone lean up against like their husband or their boyfriend on the plane. And I think, oh, I just really wish I had someone to lean my head against right now. It's just mm-hmm. little moments like that or, yeah. Um, Probably, though, for you, you would end up leaving your head on the top of their head. That's but. rude. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I've noticed, though, but, like, you've never been, um, like, a relationship carnivore. Like, you, you've you never been, like, rushed, seeming like rushing around just trying to get mm-hmm. some guy interested in you and trying to get in a relationship. And just, it doesn't seem to be an idolatry for you. I think I, I've... I'm prone to frustration for people who give me dating advice because it often consists of like work harder, make yourself more of obvious, more available, mm-hmm. like pursue flirts, um, right. like figure out what he's interested in, go buy the book that is, go buy his favorite book and conspicuously read it somewhere where he can see it, you know. Right. Um, and I think that always seemed to me like an affront against trusting God and his ability to manage things on my behalf better than I could, which is not to say that I just want to like hide under a rock and um, just say God will bring someone under this rock if mm-hmm. he sees fit. But you take showers and you wear nice outfits. <laughs> yeah, and I try, you, you know. Look I wear people heels, the face when they talk to you. So that's, I do wear heels, so I'm sorry about that, but yeah. you got to have some fun. <laughs> um, but I think that was my conviction mm-hmm. in growing up that... Um, wow. that expending all that energy on working and trying to manufacture something is it's not the worst thing but it's not the best thing it's not the thing you might just figure out like I've always when I've spoken to groups of single women mm-hmm. usually younger girls I always say spend instead of spending your time on your feminine wiles mm-hmm. why not spend some time on your character yeah, because had... Ruth didn't get Boaz because she batted her eyes and put on a pretty dress. She mm-hmm. got Boaz because she was a woman of incredibly noble character, and he noticed that about her. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up, twits usually get idiots. Right. I had that conviction in high school particularly. In all of the time I spent chasing after guys, and I was really convicted that, uh, well, I grew up in the true love weights generation, right? So right. you're supposed to make a list of your ideal man and not settle for anything less <laughs> so um, whoops <laughs> so I remember like looking at these lists and I was like man this is like Superman right. like 
I, if hope, I, if I hope he's not making a list about exactly, me. Exactly, exactly. I would <laughs> if I met him, I wouldn't want him to settle for me. Right. Um, that guy that, needs to find somebody pretty right, amazing. Right. And so that was sort of my um, eye-opening moment to like I really want to focus on my character and mm-hmm. learn who Christ is and learn to depend on him and be a woman of beauty and character so that if I ever end up meeting that man, he would actually want want to be with me. His best judgment would drive him towards me and not away from me. Do you think that that kind of make a list and don't settle kind of thing has actually afflicted the millennial generation and actually accepting a flawed individual as a lifetime I mean, I think it has to be both. I think it's just was swung too far in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Because what that also created in me was like the false expectation, the sort of fairy tale and this lack of grace for people who have issues mm-hmm. um, and this blindness to my own issues and the expectation that my issues don't have to be dealt with and I can judge your issues freely. Um, sort of double standard. Um, and unrealistic expectations for marriage and how right. it will satisfy you. And yeah. In my wedding, we won't need to have in the vow, bear with each other's <laughs> weaknesses and infirmities. We won't have any. Yeah. So I think that um, I do see a lot of negative ramifications from the abuse of that idea. Um, But I think I really enjoy, I always feel like I shouldn't say this and like um, have it be recorded, but I enjoy being single um, because I think there's the opportunity for God to fulfill what's lacking. um, And that's just a treasure that sometimes I fear losing in marriage um, in that Um, whatever loneliness I feel Christ has the capacity to fill to overflowing and I've tasted it and I've seen it and if you're single and you're um, genuinely lonely loneliness is painful and it's um, a product of a fallen world we're supposed to be in relationship we're supposed to have companionship and communion um and yeah. so it's okay to be honest about the fact that that's painful um, as long as you're honest with Christ about it and that you look to him for it and um, he is able to fill that. Um, Was there anything you wanted to say about what you've learned along the way? Um, I think to sort of cap off that talk about being away from home and mm-hmm. sort of unsettled, I think one of my biggest lessons particularly in the year that I was overseas, was about the nature of home. What actually is home? And we talk a lot about like having your home in Christ. And mm-hmm. um, that was kind of a sort of a, a platitude in my mind until I was basically homeless for a year, um, moving around every few weeks and living in other people's houses and never really having a space of my own. And as a woman wanting to be able to welcome people into a home that I had made mm-hmm. um, and knowing that I might never really have the opportunity to do that. And it really challenged my concept of home in that it must be possible somehow to have a feeling of stability in the midst of all this chaos, to have a feeling of being at home through all of this traveling. And um, and to it really challenged me to see Christ as my home, that in Christ, I'm always at home, um, that I can never really be displaced when my home is in Christ. And I think I couldn't do what I'm do- planning on doing if he hadn't really impressed that upon me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So. Sweet. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. I know that people we get we get the best feedback from the from the testimony. <laughs> so thanks, Hannah, so much. And of course, if, also if you have a um, if you want to ask Hannah out on a date, H <laughs> at halfwaynchurch.org. Um, and uh, I do talk with her about her future plans. There's a lot of details that we can't include here that you'll find interesting. So look for the tall, funny, well dressed, dark glasses, straight. Getting new hair. glasses, so don't go by that. Yeah. But. Great. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Hope we'll see you guys next time. And I hope that God blessed you in some way and you learned something about the gospel and were challenged to trust Jesus more deeply by hearing this. See you later.